Hi, I'm Chad Emerson, and this is the Downtown Explorer podcast, the virtual third place where we gather for interesting conversations with downtown innovators and entrepreneurs. Hi, everyone. We are back. Hard to believe, Tim. Episode seven. Y'all and, that's my lucky number, too. Well, seven. Well, that's why we're, we're glad to have Devin Keith, city councilor, here as our seventh guest. Devin, seventh guest. Let me speak yeah. today. Welcome. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for having me. I was, I'm home, actually, downtown, so I'm happy to be here. Well, currently, your district includes part of downtown. Walk people through who may not be familiar where the district boundaries are. Absolutely. What part of downtown is in your district? The best parts. Um, from City Hall to um, the publics, all the way down to governors. Now that I say that, um, half of now the hospital, your office and we are sitting in your district, yeah, right? Right now, right now at Green Street. So it stretches from there all the way up to Douglas Road. Land-wise, um, a very large district, and culture and community-wise, a very dis- uh, diverse district. So one of the things that's really interesting about your district is it has some of the uh, most established neighborhoods, some, some of the newest lofts. I mean, it just feels yeah. like it's an eclectic mix of a lot of different types of people. Absolutely. And I think that represents where we're going as a city of Huntsville. Um, I started in North Woods, which is in my district, and having the ability to have some reminiscent moments every time I touch doors, I hear phone calls about streets that need to be paved, remind me of growing up on places like Bragg and Maston Lake, but also being downtown, a place of business and understanding to see the evolution of downtown from being a kid um, in my old age, remembering downtown, I only feel like where lawyers are supposed to be. And now I feel like a place by which um, I can ride a scooter, wink, wink, or get a good um, bite of food at some food truck rally or hear good music. Uh, it's just changed in, in large part to your efforts. Okay, so um, big district, part includes downtown. It's 10 p.m. on a Thursday night, and people are at the dais complaining about certain <laughs> things. <laughs> Do you ever ask yourself, why in the heck did I run for city council? Without a doubt. Um, why did you, you run right for here. city council? Well, you know, it's so funny, man. I, I think, one, it's a blessing to even be in the position I am, so I don't want to sound ungrateful. And the opportunities we've had for myself to learn as a leader, but the changes we've made, I think, have been intentional in making Northwest Huntsville a better Northwest Huntsville, which in turn makes a better Huntsville. But I'll tell you, um, going back to just remembering <laughs> grad school, I tell people all the time I was in Boston living my life. Uh, nice car, pretty girls, traveling the world. Anyway, uh, things were good in grad school. But once you start to do more research, and one of my capstone projects was to review the housing market and the economic downturn that happened in local communities. And I just picked where I was from. And the more you dive into the data and the more you look at um, why certain things hadn't been done and you start to make questions that sort of evolved my interest and in thought. Um, I was originally trying to get to law school and make a lot of money. And I found myself in grad school just trying to make a lot of change. And slowly but surely, crazy enough, I called my friends and I was like, do y'all know what a uh, city councilman does? And they're like, oh, what is that? So <laughs> trying to figure out what even process to go through. And um, a couple conversations later, we were literally walking much on like your notepad right there door-to-door asking people what bothered them about North Huntsville, and it morphed into a campaign. Yeah. And so this was your first elected office, right? Absolutely. And when did you decide in this process that public service was going to be a part of your life? Man, it was through a lot of prayer um, (laughs) and a lot of conversations. There was nobody really to look towards. I I mean, it's funny. I have a picture as as a kid of myself with Dr. Showers uh, at Operation Nehemiah, 
and my aunt always points to it and laughs. But in my mind, Dr. Showers was more like a community leader, a figurehead. There was no connection to the politics of it. And he is a titan and a blessing to our community. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for individuals like him. But I'm very aware that public servant um, has a value stem to it. But then there had to be a development arm of servitude. I think people, sometimes politicians, over-embellish, which causes frustration for a lot of voters, this idea of servitude but not action. And when I saw that there was an opportunity to do things through action, um, I think that's when I started to realize, okay, maybe connecting with the right people, putting together a plan, there was value to put together something that made public servitude um, action-based perspective rather than a responsive perspective. So give us some insight what it's like to be a city councilor, not just a city councilor, but one where there's only four other councilors. You look at mm, Nashville, there's right. almost 30, if not 30, Montgomery, Mobile, uh, Birmingham, they all have large councils. But really, for something to pass the Huntsville City Council, you just need to get two other people to agree with you because there's only five. Right, right. I Walk joke. us through that process. Cause you, is it harder or easier or what? You know, municipal government has changed throughout the history. Not to get into it because I teach it too much. But um, when you look at county government and really across the region, it, it, it differs. What you were talking about, when you think about aldermen at large seats, the reason that district representation at this amount, the biggest city in the city of, I mean, the state of Alabama, is important is because the powers that you're saying to your fellow council members is that I represent the voice of some 40 something thousand almost 50,000 people and the value of that it goes into the decisions around a half a billion dollar budget and decisions moving forward around generational decisions where to put a school um, decisions made by directors and where the mayor acts as the executive branch and has a lot of power of presenting planning the city councilman and councilwoman gets the opportunity to bring the perspective of that plan what people are really saying so whether you're investing in a $68 million amphitheater, overall development at Mid-City, um, or you're trying to create a skate park, those conversations from different um, regional parts of the community have tremendous value. I'll tell you really something to think about when you're on council is that you're being told to approve decisions that have either made numerous amounts, months at a time, years sometimes of zoning, investments, and saying at this moment, we're making a decision to move forward. I tell people most of the work, when you get to council, you've, you've read, you've listened, you've conversed. So you understand that the decision I'm making now, mostly, is an informed decision. And I think people need to understand we are not making a decision uh, ad hocly. The, the, the Thursday night represents the confirmation of our choices when we get there. And because of Sunset Law, we actually can't convince, I mean, um, convene and we can't try and convince others beforehand to make those decisions. We're making these solely to ourselves with a level of autonomy, political autonomy, and we're discussing them at council. That's why it goes to discussion. So, uh, you know, I, I think council represents the work of the, the in-between weeks, but also represents the work of months and years. And right now, local government is leading the way in innovation. I, I tell people all the time. You can, you can point to a number of cities, Austin being an example, obviously Huntsville being an example, of the things they've done to leverage to bring companies, as you know, uh, the things that they've done to leverage bring uh, concerts, the things that they've done to leverage to bring these things. These were not led on by a governor. These weren't led by a state senator or a state rep. The majority of these things were put together by a council member, economic development team, people like yourself inside of the community who went to a mayor and a council and said, we should make our city special. 
one of the things that I think people try to make Huntsville special is to be an inclusive community. Right. Um, and there's a lot of ways to define that. Um, as a young African-American professional relocating here from Boston, so you, you grew up here, so you right. have, does it feel inclusive? Does downtown feel inclusive? I mean, that's a hard question, but it's an important question, right? Let me tell you, the, and I, I can say this to you as anybody who is listening, obviously you're a parent of somebody of another race, and you have been in a place in space downtown where you have seen the twos and fro's of public interaction, good and bad. I actually don't believe that there's a place where you say you arrived. I don't think that Atlanta can say it. I don't think New York can say it. I don't think LA can say it because constructively the diversity change in the nation is ever changing from age to gender, to sexual orientation, and obviously the race. What I think Huntsville has decided to do is work towards it. At the pace that you work and you invest in it, it shows how much you care about it. When you think about the diversity of arts that are put together, when you think about the diversity of food options that are put together and the investment behind them, that's when you're aware. But I think one of the things that needs to be stated, we are the beneficiary of two really historically great, amazing HBCUs who've produced some of the best African-Americans in the region and in the, na- the national level as well. Yeah, that's a great segue because I was going to yeah. ask you, is like one of the things that I think is one of the assets in Huntsville that for whatever reason, sometimes we don't realize we have two HBCU Very public rare. HBCUs right. right here adjacent to downtown. Absolutely. And I mean, not even the, you know, the Magic City can say that. You know, Fairfield is one that owns miles. And the success of our other communities have been the trickle point. When you look at Tuscaloosa, no Alabama, no I would even say no Nick Saban, no growth that they've seen in the past 10 years. So if you don't think colleges have impact, then you're not understanding really the economics of, you know, the three to four mile radius. But more importantly, like you said, to add to the diversity is that we are getting quality individuals coming out of that institution and individuals who call this place home from the faculty to staff and people who come to do research. And then you add on top of that UAH who brings a large amount of individuals in the engineering school from the Asian community and such. They add to the diversity in the area. We are tremendously blessed that in the greater region of Huntsville, three staple colleges increase our diversity pool. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that is another challenge sometimes is the, the word, which is sometimes is considered to be a bad word, but it's, I mean, it's just a word is gentrification. Oh man, what a trope. Um, yeah. And so I think a lot of people have, have associated with something that may or may not development be. Development and redevelopment. But you grew up in a neighborhood near downtown, right? Right. And it's a neighborhood which will continue if it hasn't already to right. gentrify. Right. Tell us about that process of neighborhoods and how it fits with displacement, but also you have some people who own the homes that now have values. So, yeah, uh, and, and to back up, because one, this could be a TED Talk, but I think this is a great question because it has not been explained well. And I, think, I don't think it's intentional ignorance. I just think people are fearful. If an individual owns a property in a place or a space that its location when they first got it had a certain value, that value has rose, and thus an investor... A person shows up to say, I will pay for the new price of this property, and they sell it. That by themselves is a private agreement. There is no gentrification involved. The person did not show up and say you had to move. The person did not show up and say that there's an indemnity clause. You, you, we're not running a road through here. People are selling their property and making profits. So then if the individual who is the investor decides not to use that place as a home, tears it down, and redevelops, you're now into redevelopment. 
you're changing the use of the parcel. What people will need to understand specifically, I think in what we would consider low to mod income areas is that if an individual makes a choice, gentrification in its tagline does not fit the model and mold because that choice was given to every freedom and loving American to do what they want with the things that they own. The concern that has to happen, I think this leads into it, is that are we displacing people because of development from not having an opportunity to enjoy the amenities that the city brings? Now, that is multifaceted. People are, need to be very aware. Affordable housing is a good argument in there. Infrastructure is a humongous argument. Access, right? Can you get on a street, drive to go get food, drive to your school, and then not take you know, an hour and 45 minutes? And my understanding of what we're doing in places like CNI Grant that I've been heavily involved with in places like Governors um, is that the mixed model income, so having a Cersei Homes, an Avenue, and a Twickingham within a three-mile radius has shown generationally to be the best example of success for a city. We have to fight in places like Terry Heights that that location in places like um, on Meridian, places that have direct access to good schools, direct access to downtown, quality food, quality of access to public service, hospitals and such, stay. That we put limiters on it, can't turn into a hotel. You know, Terry Heights needs to be a neighborhood. Who stays in that neighborhood, again, is a private agreement, but it needs to stay a neighborhood. And then if you had that mixed model, things that you've talked about, we talk about diversity of stores downtown, right? You needed a coffee shop. Down the street, you need somewhere that sells clothes. That diversity spurs people coming downtown, and it has value. The same thing in this gentrification world. When you allow private businesses to build things that you can't replace home, house, or community with, you can't put a school there, that's when you start to get into a place where you're displacing people from opportunity. But right now, I can tell you right now, in the greater, not just District 1, but in the greater downtown five to seven mile radius, the most affordable houses are within a five mile radius to the downtown area. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to hear that. The most expensive homes sit on top of a mountain that have septic tanks and takes 25 minutes to get from to get downtown or to get to a hospital. So who's being gentrified? Now, you can say that the school system feeder pattern has consideration. That's a whole nother podcast. But again, the most expensive locations, I mean, that's including Stender Spot that's trying to sell on Franklin, right? Most expensive homes sit on top of a mountain or over a mountain, and they take longer to get to the downtown core than the most affordable homes. Terry Heights just sold a home that was bought for 65000 The new owner just sold it right there on Carolyn for $125,000. Well, you know, that's, um, there's a bit of entrepreneurship in that. And, and I, one of the things about entrepreneurship is that you, I won't say you put your money where your mouth is, but you put your coffee cup where your mouth is, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you decided to open a coffee I've shop. i making a bunch of bad decisions. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a pretty good decision, at least in terms of the quality of the coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Um, walk us through, tell us where it is because it's in this, Really interesting redeveloped plaza with some other great Absolutely. minority-owned businesses and non-minority-owned businesses, but the dark side. Yes, sir. Tell us about it. So um, not too long ago, we remember that at this location off the parkway in the Oakwood, used to be an old thrift store, um, became Squatter's Corner. People were in this old plaza, um, 
you know, vandalizing it, just a number of issues of police calls and such. And I promote the parkway. When we first got in the office, we really saw redevelopment on the parkway is what is central. And we're still in it, you know what I mean, from Max Luther to Lantana, working our way up. Um, but that location within itself was owned by the Martinsons. And Doug, as you know, who's downtown in my district, is an amazing Huntsvillian. His family's amazing. So they were able to put an agreement together with the great Jim Babson, Hall Bryant. And Jim, as crazy as he is, was open to, um, you know, having a conversation about being intentional with who he brought in there. And I said to him, for us to bring economic do- dollars in, for us to do the parking lot, the lighting and such, I want you to start with the lead tenant being one, the individuals from Scanlon there who stayed there, that was a hairdresser, but that we could bring in eateries or something that was diverse and different with the lead anchor actually being North Huntsville Business Association. And North Huntsville Business Association, he agreed to, and they came in and subsidized, was the relocation of Betty Mays. Uh, Betty Mays was closed for a long time. And then he also brought in uh, the Three Brothers, and that is a um, Mexican food. And then obviously he kept Kim's, who is um, a Korean um, cook, and she's had Kim's for, uh, I can know, as long as I've been alive. I don't even know the time from decades. And then me and my friends were talking about what we discussed with you is that there had to be a meeting place. Uh, North Huntsville didn't have a place with the closure of Starbucks, but then also uh, with the, you know, the condensed view of their internal part by which you could sit where people could come and get a cup of coffee and converse. And I think a good cup of coffee helps any conversation. So we just said, why not us? And we opened up Dark Side. And, and then we'll be celebrating a year in November, which is absolutely crazy. And... But, it has one of the quirkiest things in a coffee shop, and I bring this up every time yes. we talk. How did you decide, let's put in a self-serve cereal bar <laughs> with, like, Lucky Charms and Fruit Loops and all the other stuff? I, I mean, that's, that, you don't see that everywhere. I don't know. There's a guy that comes in there and plays video games probably once a month, and I think he eats this out of house at home. He really <laughs> takes the buffet serious. But honestly, everything in there came from college. Um, all the sandwiches I used to make when I was in college, um, the grilled cheeses are really unique, but that cereal bar... When we were in college, man, I don't know, you know, Tim looking at me, man, you should be able to, I could eat cereal all day. Now it mess up my stomach. But I, I, I just thought, you know, everybody wanted a good bowl of cereal. And we have eight different options. And it has um, worked especially for our younger um, customers who come in and they just watch mommy drink a cup of coffee and they eat a bowl of cereal. Yeah, I've taken my girls over there, and they're just like, I mean, that's they see those things as cereal, <laughs> and they're like, boy, this is this is Nirvana for yes. a kiddo at a coffee shop, right? What's the most popular drink and and uh, sandwich there these days? Um, not to be biased, there's a sandwich called a Keith. Everybody, if you want to go taste the greatest grilled cheese you've ever had, what but makes, what makes the Keith? What's what kind of cheese is in the Keith? <laughs> oh man, I fell in love with Gouda. That sounds so bougie. When I moved to Boston. Um, Italian family, as you could, cheeses, it was just crazy. Um, so it's a Gouda mix with a cinnamon spread. And then I used to dip it in, when I was in college, and they used to have, at Sanford, they had a, which is another bougie thing, but they didn't have normal syrup. They had blueberry syrup. So it's a mixture of blueberry jam and syrup. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, and it yeah. tastes amazing. you got to try it. If you listen to me, it's our number one seller. But our drink. Um, which is what we call coffee Kool-Aid. It's called a Darkachino. And we made it in-house. Um, it's not actually that sweet, but because we get our coffee bean from Cameroon, they have a natural cherry flavor to them. We made, we mixed this rum-esque chocolatey flavor. So it's almost like a chocolatey cherry taste to the coffee. 
Is that intentional to get your source your beans from an African country versus South American or Central American? Yes. Um, many people don't know. You talk about light and dark roast. The reason we called it dark side is because it stands for dark coffee, north side, which was a double entendre on the individual we met. But we met a guy from Cameroon who, who had a bean. We were sourcing beans, thinking of beans. And, you know, when you have light roast, that's your strongest roast. The darker it sits, the more the flavor. And when we get to this dark, I mean, if you saw our beans, it, it is true like a black bean. It has its strongest aroma and its strongest taste of what it is. And um, we thought that this was it. You know, we wanted to make dark coffee a little bit more sweet, flavorful. It has the same impact. Um, Bill Kling loves to go there and he says it's high octane. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, we, we sourced it because of that that sweet cherry flavor. So... The entire plaza, including the dark side, I mean, it's basically a neighbor to downtown, right? Yes, So tell yes. people who aren't familiar with the area where you can find the dark side coffee shop. Yes, sir. It's at the corner of Oakwood. If you know where the Kroger is, that's our price of reference. And it's not too far from at home for everybody. I know everybody knows where at home is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's the southbound side um, at the corner of North Parkway and Oakwood. Yep. And while you're there, uh, you can go, like you said, next door. There's right. an art gallery. Yeah. There's great well, food. Yeah. Even, I mean, after, before the, his heartbreaking passing from COVID, Chris mm -hmm. Kelly was putting in Bad News Barbecue Bad News there. Barbecue, yeah. So, um, yeah, what a great plaza. And what a great uh, story that you're not just talking about entrepreneurship, you're actually engaged in it. And learning from it. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. So that's our conversation. We're going to have one more segment, which is what we call our favorite five. Uh, we ask you five questions designed for one-word answers. You can explain if you'd like, but um, it's a fun segment. And so let's talk about uh, these are the five. Devin, right, you ready? All right. Devin's favorite five, espresso or drip coffee? Espresso. And I'll tell you, listening to me, you're going to taste the most and get the most bang for buck. That drip coffee will settle, and you'll be like, why is it so weak? But espresso, just take the shot and enjoy the day. All right. There's a, a football game going on between Sanford and UMass. Sanford. <laughs> somebody asked me that already. You have a connection with yeah, UMass. Though, yeah, right? man. I love there. UMass. No, somebody asked me that. Um, UMass was a great experience, to say the least, um, except for, like, the six months that this stuff fell from the sky that was white and never, ever melted. But um, graduating from UMass was one of the best decisions I ever made. But you're pulling for the center. How about those dogs? <laughs> Bike share or scooter share? Scooters. They will come. I will... I can promise you, before we get out of 2022, you will have a phenomenal answer um, about scooters. We are long overdue. I did. A, I just rode one in Birmingham, and I just hate to hear Birmingham's doing things we're not doing. Deep dish or thin crust pizza? That is actually a great question. Wow. If I had to go to Stone, what is it called at uh, Cape Stone? Earth and Stone. Earth and Stone, thin crust. If I have to do deep dish from Panavino deep dish all right so that's really a non-answer yeah i know <laughs> i know earth is stone's thin crust is like really good though and most important of all fruit loops or fruity pebbles wow all right i'm about to say fruit loops because 
they just don't sog as fast. That yeah. sogginess I can't do. Yeah, you got you got to get on those, you know, those fruity pebbles. Fruity fast, like, yeah. like that day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. That is Devin Keith, our city councilor from District One, the greatest in- district in all of Huntsville, and includes a large chunk of downtown, including where we're sitting recording this. And he's also one of the owners of Darkside Coffee. So yes, come sir. check out Darkside Coffee. Devin, thanks for all you do. Thank you, Hero. Thank Great you for leadership. everything you do, man. All right. We'll see you next time on the Downtown Huntsville Explorer Podcast.